Let's pray together. God, you are holy. You are set apart. You are other than. You are also merciful. And it's because you're merciful that we can lean on your everlasting arms. And we can come to you with all of our doubts, with all of our questions, with all of our concerns. And we know that you won't chase us out. You won't condemn us. But instead, you will reassure us through your son, Jesus Christ, that you care, that you have compassion, and that you want to grow our faith and deepen our understanding of who you are, what you've accomplished for us, and what you're continuing to do on our behalf. And so I pray as we open your word this morning that all of those truths would jump out and would grab hold of our hearts and would just tie us closely to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. The Gospel of Luke, the third book in your New Testament. There's so much rich truth in this Gospel. And I'm glad to return to it this morning. And I hope that you've been blessed as we've been going through this series together. I went back to check. And believe it or not, this is the 42nd sermon from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 7, so we're making progress here, Um, but uh, we've been in here a while, and we have a ways to go. And I hope that you've come to realize over the years, if you've been part of Bethel, that expository preaching, this verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible, is far from monotonous. Every week we come back, and, and it's, a, it's a different subject, it's a different aspect of our faith, it's a different way that we grow through a deep dive into God's Word, and so stick with me, we only have a few years to go, and, and we'll get through this book, all right? So follow along as I read. I'm in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. I'm going to read down through verse 23 this morning. Luke records this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We'll stop there for this morning. There's more to this account, and we'll come back to that next time, Lord willing. But for this morning, we'll stop here. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have sometimes had that lingering question in your mind, is God really real? And, and is, if he's out there somewhere... Is he really listening? Is he really guiding my life? Or do I believe in God just because my 
parents told me to believe in him or maybe that was the way I was raised. Um, Maybe it's all just a farce. Have you ever had that lingering question? Or maybe you've uh, had this happen to you. you. You've prayed and then you've thought to yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I even praying? If, if God does exist, it doesn't seem like he really cares about me right now. Based on what I'm going through, it feels like a waste of time to pray to this God because he's either ignoring me or I'm just praying into thin air. Ever had that thought? Have you ever wrestled with a promise or a miracle recorded in the Bible and you just go, ah, I don't know. That just seems a little far-fetched. And maybe you've questioned in your mind, is this book really written by God or is this just a man-made book? I mean, every religion has some sacred book. Why should I trust this one over any other? These are doubts that we sometimes have, but they're doubts that we don't utter out loud for fear of what that might mean about my faith. Because think about it. If I question whether or not God is real, or if I question to whether or not he's actually working in my life, maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. Right? So we take those thoughts and we kind of bury them or we, we ignore them and we push them away and we think, well, maybe they'll resol- resolve themselves and then they don't. Friend, if that is you this morning, if you are coming and you have doubts at times or you wrestle with doubts about God and whether or not he's working in your life and whether or not he's real, and whether or not he's out there, you are not alone. Some of the greatest men and women throughout history have experienced times of doubt. And the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about that. The the Bible doesn't run from that as if, gasp, anybody would ever struggle with doubt. The Bible actually talks about it. And it actually gives us permission to, to wrestle with that. And the Lord then speaks to it. Here's the thing that I want you to grasp this morning as we work our way through this text. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. It's something I'm unsure of. It's something I can't quite understand. Maybe I don't get what what God is doing. Belief, or excuse me, unbelief, on the other hand, is a matter of the will. It's something that I refuse to do. I refuse to believe. I refuse to obey God's word. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Okay? So we sometimes confuse a a strong faith with positive feelings. So uh, as if I never question, question anything, it just all makes perfect sense. And, and that's, that's strong faith. It's just this positive feeling. But here's the thing. Faith is not something that I feel. Rather, faith is my act of turning to God in however I feel. 
That's faith. It's being honest with God and saying to him, I don't understand this. I have questions about this. And it's in the act of turning to God with our doubts that we find the seeds of hope. Doubt in the believer may be a needed area of growth, but that doubt should be carefully distinguished from the doubt of an unbeliever. The unbeliever has no Christian faith. The unbeliever rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever utterly rejects and refuses to repent of his sin. The believer, on the other hand, is saved by faith, has confessed sin, has repented, has received forgiveness, but may sometimes still struggle with doubt about aspects of his faith or aspects of God. He or she is the person who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe in you, but help me understand. I have these doubts that are here. Belief is there, but unbelief can sometimes still be present. That's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at this account of John the Baptist. And to be fair, John the Baptist is not even the first person in the Bible to wrestle with doubt. Doubt started way back in the Garden of Eden where Satan came along and he planted the question, did God really say? And so Adam and Eve act upon that doubt and they sin. Later in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah uh, doubted when God delivered the promise that they would have a son. In fact, they laughed. <laughs> that's, I'm, that's remarkable. We, that, that can't happen, right? Can't possibly be true. Elijah struggled with doubt when he was threatened by Queen Jezebel. And when you get into the New Testament, sadly, even the disciples struggled with doubt when they were told, Jesus is resurrected. And they were sort of like, "Uh, I don't know. So doubt is not something new. It's not something foreign to believers. We should and we must be open about this subject. So let's look at John. Let's take a look at what's going on here with him. Luke doesn't remind us when you get to chapter 7, but you should remember from Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist is sitting in prison as he's asking these questions. He went to prison because he called out Herod Antipas for his adulterous and unbiblical marriage uh, to Herodias. It was forbidden by scripture, and as a result, he was thrown into the dungeon. And according to the historian Josephus, John the Baptist was thrown into the gloomy fortress of Machaerus for daring to challenge the king. Ancient dungeons were nothing like today's modern prison systems. There's no electricity in dungeons. There was no television there. Maybe you had a a bunk bed, but there were certainly no conveniences or amenities that happened of any sort, no No neatly washed clothes, no snack collection that you could go and purchase from. In a place like this, where John the Baptist is residing, you have to fight off the rats in order to have your food, in order to eat your meal. Most of your day is spent just trying to stay dry 
because of the constant dripping into your cell. The smell in dungeons like this is rank. The quarters are cramped. The walls are moldy and murky. To be in a dungeon is nothing more than a day-to-day fight for survival. You could have friends, relatives that could come and visit you. In fact, we see that happening here. But even the warm torch that they bring and the kind words that they share with you are barely enough to keep your spirits up in a place like this. For all practical purposes, your life is over. You're destined to rot away here with the rest of the scum of the earth that got thrown here in this prison. Your name has been forgotten by all of civil society. No wonder John is struggling. He used to be on the outside. He used to be free to go wherever he wanted. He lived in the wilderness. He was never encumbered by walls and guards and shackles. And when John the Baptist used to preach, and oh man, that guy, he could preach. He would preach fire and brimstone. If you go back and listen to him, he was like a zealous preacher. In fact, let me just read for you a couple of the things that he used to preach. Back in chapter 3 of Luke, it says, John the Baptist therefore went to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And here's what he says. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, John used to say, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's that kind of a preacher. Very direct Very loud. Listen again as he answers his critics in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then you hear John the Baptist ramp it up. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This guy is passionate. He is loud. He is calling down the the judgment of God and his message is one of severe and immediate judgment. He's out there saying, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to take all you snakes who don't follow him and he is going to just chop you right out. He's going to burn you up. All of you are going to pay the price for not repenting, for not following Jesus. He's just boom, 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 boom. And then it doesn't happen. In fact, not only did it not happen that way, But just the opposite is happening. John is hearing these reports of Jesus going around and he's healing people. And he is forgiving people. And he's being kind and he's being compassionate to people. What kind of Messiah is this? 
And while he's being kind to all these other people, he has seemed to have all but forgotten about John. And I suspect that John is sitting there thinking, if he is so powerful, why isn't he doing something about my incarceration? Does he even know where I am? Why isn't he helping me? I was his forerunner for crying out loud. Why isn't he doing something for me? Is this all the thanks I'm going to get from him? Sometimes it's the same thing that can happen to you. You become a Christian and you're all on fire for Jesus. And you're reading your Bible and you're praying for others and you're telling your friends about Jesus and you have this expectation that life is just going to be phenomenal. You're going to rise up and you're going to demand and you're going to declare victory and you're going to have these mighty acts of courage and God is going to give you dominion over the enemy and over the world and everybody is going to celebrate your power and your unstoppable authority And then you're thrown into the dungeon. You get cancer. You get old and you can't hear anymore. Can't see anymore. Your marriage falls apart. Your spouse dies. Your child dies. You lose a job. Your best friend stabs you in the back and you sit back and you say, What just happened? God, what is going on? You promised me that goodness and mercy would follow me all the days of my life. You promised me that you would never leave me or forsake me. You promised me peace. I have none of those things. Look at everything I've done for you. And your mind turns to the question that you thought you would never ask. God, are you even out there? Is any of this even true? And a flood of doubt sweeps you out into a sea of uncertainty. Have you ever been there? John hears all the things that Jesus is doing and he remembers his message of judgment and fire and then he looks at his own circumstances and he says, this just doesn't line up. And so the next time a couple of his friends, a couple of his disciples come to visit him, he sends a message to Jesus. Are you the one? I mean, really, are you the one that's to come or... Maybe I missed it. Maybe there's another one who's coming. Hear the the doubt in his question. Hear the skepticism. Hear the disappointment. Now, some people will argue that as John the Baptist poses these questions to Jesus, that it's not John the Baptist who's doubting, but really John the Baptist is just setting up Jesus so that Jesus would do more miracles and take care of the doubt in the other disciples. But notice in verse 22 that when Jesus responds, he says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. This is John's doubt 
This is real doubt of John the Baptist, not John's disciples. And what what does Jesus do when he hears John's questions? Does he scold John? (laughs) John, how dare you? Come on, snap out of it. Get better. How dare you question me? What's wrong with you? Is that how he responds? No, look at verse 21. In that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. In that very hour, right at that moment, Jesus does not turn away from his doubting disciple. In fact, he is going to reassure his doubting disciple through his miraculous works. And then he tells the two messengers, verse 22, Go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, why would Jesus respond like that? Why this message? Jesus knows that John knows the Old Testament. And Jesus knows that as soon as John hears these things, his mind is going to quickly go back to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he will see then the messianic accomplishments coming true in Jesus. For example, John would know that in Isaiah chapters 29, chapters 35, and again in chapter 42, Isaiah says that the blind will receive their sight and the deaf will hear. John knows that in Isaiah 35, Isaiah said that the lame would walk. John knows in 2 Kings 5, there's healing for leprosy. And he also knows in Isaiah chapter 26, that the dead will be raised. In fact, Jesus has just performed that miracle right before this passage we're studying this morning. All of these things that were predicted in the Old Testament were coming true In Jesus, yes, judgment is coming. Yes, fire and punishment is coming for those who refuse to believe in Jesus. But first, Jesus is telling John, there is kindness and compassion when Jesus appears for the first time. And I want you to notice something about the order that Jesus lays out here as he tells these disciples to go back and John. As Jesus is telling the disciples, here's what I want you to relay to John. He builds up to the most important aspect. He says, yes, the blind are receiving sight. That's important. Yes, the lame are walking. The lepers are healed. The dead are being raised up. But raising the dead, Jesus says, is not the climax There's something even greater that's happening, John. The poor are hearing the good news. That's the greatest of all. They're hearing the good news. And I would just tell you, friend, that is the greatest work of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus. All of the miracles that Jesus does, all of the wonderful uh, humanitarian and acts of grace that Jesus does, those are all amazing. But they serve a purpose, and that is to point to who Jesus truly is. 
He is the Son of God. And the Son of God is preaching good news. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Son of God is preaching the good news when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. What does that mean? It means simply this. Jesus recognized that you and I, as humans, are sinners. We've been separated from God the Father, and therefore, we rightly deserve the fire and the punishment that John the Baptist is predicting is coming. In fact, we believe that it is still coming when Jesus returns a second time, and for all of those who refuse to believe in Jesus, that will be a terrifying day. But for those who recognize their sin, repent of it and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross. He rose again. They're going to be spared that punishment. They will be given eternal life and the hope of heaven. John, the poor, are hearing my gospel. And they're believing. And then he adds this final and gentle reassurance in verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does that mean? Well, it means a special blessing is awaiting the one who does not fall into the trap of doubt, but by God's grace continues to trust. Keep trusting me, Jesus says. Don't give up. Your faith may be small, but I'm fanning it into flame. Don't get offended at me because your preconceived notions of how life should play out is not happening for you. Don't rush to some immediate judgment, but rather, Jesus says, look at how I've been faithful to my promises over and over and over again in your life. Believe that I have not forgotten about you, that I am the promised one, then you will be blessed. Friend, Jesus may be trying to tell you that exact same thing today. Maybe life hasn't been fair according to your standards, what you believe should happen. Instead of becoming bitter, And falling into doubt, take those concerns to Jesus. Go to him. That's what what John did. He went to Jesus, not away from him. And in the, the midst of our doubts, what we will oftentimes do is we will try to look for some tangible assurance that that God really cares. We will look for some confirmation. Maybe maybe we get a phone call uh, from one of our friends, or maybe we're looking for some internal emotional feeling, or maybe we're just hoping that some card shows up in the mail. If, if we could just get something like that, then maybe we would believe. But what does Jesus tell us to do? Come to me. Come to me. Come in your prayer and come to my word. Because in truth, the scripture provides all kinds of assurance of his love and his concern, not in the least in Jesus' articulation of our doubts. Don't let it drive you away from God. 
Rather, let it move you to God. If I were to encourage you to tap into one place in the scriptures to begin, I would encourage you to go to the Psalms. We read from one of them this morning, Psalm 42, but the Psalms, the book of Psalms have become a, really a refuge for me over the, over the years. The more and more I read the Psalms, the more I'm drawn to them because you hear in the Psalms this raw kind of real emotion of the psalmist as he's telling God what he feels and, and what he's thinking and, and he's asking for God's help. And in God's mercy, he included the psalms in his Bible so that you could see it. He doesn't run from our doubt. Instead, he reframes it in his mercy. I want you to look at this psalm, Psalm 77, for a moment with me. It's, it's one of the psalms that you hear the psalmist wrestling with his doubt and with his God. In Psalm 77, the psalmist starts out, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying my soul, refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You can hear the psalmist, he's faltering. He's stumbling, it's, it's hard. Jump down to verse, verse seven. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Do you hear his anguish? He's struggling. He says, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You hear his doubt? Where are you? What are you doing? This is God's word. God is letting us hear, and he's not afraid of our doubt. But we have to express it to him. Come and tell him what you're feeling. Tell him what's on your mind. How does the psalmist find hope? What does he do to encourage his soul? Well, look down at verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? The psalmist looks back and he remembers. He remembers how God worked in the past, in the scriptures, and how God has worked in his own life in the past. And he's reminded of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. It's exactly what Jesus is asking John to do. Look at the promises and then look at me and how I keep them every single time. We sing an old hymn here and it goes like this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, 
When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Feed your faith with the faithfulness of God to his people and recognize that that is the same gracious heart that he has toward you. He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He is faithfully walking alongside you and he will not allow your faith to completely crumble. Keep trusting him. If you're thinking to yourself, man, I would love to talk to somebody about my doubts. Talk to Jesus. And then if you say, well, I, I, also, I want to talk to somebody. Come talk to me. I would love to talk with you about that. I would also encourage you to jump into a discipleship group here. We have Sunday schools. We have small groups. Those leaders, take they, they listen to your prayer requests. They're caring for your soul. They want to come alongside of you. They want to help you. I would also encourage you to read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing God has been one of the most wonderful books I've ever read. It's a classic. If you're in my DTP class, you're going to be reading this alongside of me. But if you read that book, you're going to be reminded of the following truths. You are a child of God. God is your father. Heaven is your home. Each day is one day closer Jesus is your brother, and every Christian is your brother or sister too. You are not alone. And maybe you're in here this morning, and you know of a friend who is struggling with doubt. And you're like, I don't know, I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Well, Jude 22 gives this simple instruction. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't yell at them. Don't tell them to snap out of it. Don't lecture them. Don't tell them to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Show them mercy. Take them to the scriptures and remind them of the precious promises of their Savior to them. And then let the Spirit of Christ do his work. Take them to the fount of living water. Take them to Jesus. you stand let's pray together this morning and we're going to sing the song that we're going to sing is a reminder of these truths that we've learned this morning god i'm so thankful that you've included stories of people who doubt in your word you've you've included the psalms where we see doubt but you don't just show us doubt and leave it there, but you show us through your son, Jesus Christ, how to counteract that, how to, how to tackle that. It's looking at Jesus and reminding ourselves of his fulfillment of promises of old and of promises and purposes of present in our lives. 
And so, God, as we wrestle with doubt and as we wrestle with things that happen in our lives that just don't seem like how we thought they were going to be, I pray that we would come to you, that we wouldn't just pull away, go into a corner, become bitter, cold. We would come to you and tell you what we're feeling and then allow your word and your son, Jesus Christ, to minister to our soul. Father, I pray that you would raise up good and godly friends around those who are struggling with doubt. And they would show mercy and they would pray with and they would counsel and they would uh, console and help those who are struggling. And that here at Bethel, we wouldn't be afraid to to say, I'm struggling, I don't understand what God is doing here. But be unafraid to, to bring that to you and to know that you care, that you're there, and that you will answer. And in your faithfulness to us, you will not abandon us. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for your gracious presence in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray.